had a cigarette since March 3rd of 2000. Um, I'm very grateful for that. Um, my talk this morning is about powerlessness and what that means to me as somebody who's powerless over alcohol, cocaine, tobacco, and most everything else. Um, when I was a kid, alcohol was uh, was a part of our family. We were we had Christian Reformed people that lived next door. The Catholics lived behind us. It was a Jewish family across the street, and we were alcoholics, and that was the way it was. And when I was a kid, I remember telling people that I was adopted. I, I, I remember coming up with this big lie that I was adopted, that it, it, it wasn't me. This couldn't be my family. This isn't, this is not my, what I'm going to grow up with. This is not what defines me. There was lots of, um, lots of dissension. Every day of my life before I left at the age of 15 was around alcoholism and dysfunction where my dad was concerned, where my uncles were concerned. Um, the last time I spoke, I talked about the four little boys, and I'm not going to talk about that again, but it's, it's, it runs rampant in my family. Now, I was thinking last night about uh, the, the speaker last night was just unbelievable, and uh, I think we'll all agree with that. And, um, and while I was trying to fall asleep last night, I was thinking about what, did it, what it felt like. And I went through all those addictions that I just talked about letting go of, what it felt like. What did it feel like when I had my last drink? I, I know what that street court curb feels like and that, that spitting the vodka back in the bottle. I know what that feels like. I know what my nose felt like. I know what, I know what having that cigarette between my fingers felt like the last time. And I was thinking, well, what does it feel like when we're at our bottom in Al-Anon? What does that feel like? And what that felt like for me was the inability any longer to control people. When I first came into Al-Anon, I came in because I was exactly trying to control someone else. That's exactly why I came in. I had a, um, a boyfriend who had annihilated my wine stash that I had saved for years, and I was really angry. And um, I thought that I had my drinking under control because I was able to save all of this wine. I had about 65 bottles of it, and I thought that that was going to be a down payment on a house or something. And um, one day I came home, and I noticed that it was all gone, and he was pretty drunk, and, um, and I was furious. So I went to an Al-Anon meeting, and, um, and I asked them to tell me how to stop this guy from doing this, and... And um, and they told me said something to me, and, and I asked them again, and they said something again, and I asked them again, and it was just like listening to somebody speaking Mandarin Chinese. It was the equivalent of that. I had, um, I just didn't understand what they said. So a couple of years later, I kept trying to get the message of Alan on. And I had people around me that kept saying, well, you maybe ought to go to an Al-Anon meeting if you're not an alcoholic, which you don't seem to think you are. So maybe, you know, you could keep trying to, to come back and, you know, because I didn't have any peace or serenity. I kept trying to control people. My mom taught me how to do that. My mom had to do that to survive. Um, 
my mom would pack my dad's suitcases and put them in the front yard, and I'd come home and I'd see him out there, and I'd pick him up and take him back in the house and unpack him and put him away. And and um, on Friday afternoon, she'd drive over to the to the pub that my uncle owned and roll the window down and beep the horn. My my father, I'm sure, knew who was outside because laying on the horn every Friday afternoon and he'd come out and he'd throw 20 or $40 at her and she would look at it and cry and say, this isn't enough to feed our family this week. And he'd say, well, you know, I'll give you more on Monday. Well, he's going to go back in and buy the bar around. And that's the kind of chaos I grew up with. It was, you know, always trying to stop my dad, always trying to... um Get my dad, get Bob, get help. That's what I remember my mother saying over and over again. Bob, get help. I'll go with you. I'll go with you. And we all know that that's not the point. The point is powerlessness. And my father never got the powerlessness, and neither did my mom. But the good news for me today is that I got it. And um, and I was thinking last night, for those of us that grew up with alcoholism, I don't know. That's how I coped. I just joined them. I, I had to. I just I did whatever I could to numb that pain, to stop those feelings. I was a full-blown cocaine addict, absolute, first-class alcoholic. And that's what I had to do to, to feel like I could survive in this world. Um, my mother... I said something in a meeting yesterday, and, some, and always when I say something that makes me go, ooh, I can't believe you said that, it's because there's a message that I have to get from it. My mom, I, I, since being a, a, a card-carrying member of Al-Anon and understanding the program, or to the, I don't understand the program, I don't understand anything, I just know that it works for me today. I've suggested to my mother, because I still have a practicing sister and I have an Oxycontin-dependent brother, and um, and I have a mom who is still is is she's still in the swirl, she's still in the chaos. And I've said to her, you know, mom, there's a group of people in your town called Al-Anon, and they could help you with with my brother and sister. And my mother says to me, she has said this to me, you cannot tell me anything about alcoholism, Jenny. You cannot tell me a thing. And she's right, I can't. She'll say, I've written the book on it. Nobody but nobody can tell me anything. I can tell you. I said, well, you know, maybe you ought to go to one of those meetings and tell them that. <laughs> um, but I can't tell her anything about alcoholism. But I can tell her something about recovery today. My mom thinks I'm doing really well because, and I, I love to be able to say this openly here, because you guys understand this. My mom thinks I'm doing very well because I'm married to a doctor. I've married well. I have a nice house. I have a nice car. I have, uh, I have my oldest son, Tom, in the back row there. I have everything that she has ever wanted. And I don't have it without some guilt from my mom, too. But that's okay, because I don't buy into it every day. Sometimes I do, because I'm still human, and I still make, uh, I still make human, I still do human things, which is, you know, take care of your mother and, and, you know, feel bad, feel good, feel. But I don't, uh, 
she doesn't get the fact, she doesn't understand why I'm doing well. It has nothing to do with the nice house and the doctor husband, although the doctor husband's nice. He's a wonderful guy. He's in recovery today. We have a great life most of the time. But she doesn't see that. She sees the, fa- she sees the, she sees the, uh, the, the glitter on the gold. But that's, you know, that's her. What I have to do and what I can do is carry the message. Um, I was thinking this morning that being powerless is empowering because it limits your options. You can't control people anymore. You can't manipulate. You can, but it doesn't get you anywhere. Um, there was something, uh, there's a story that I want to tell that, um, that I think is one of the miracles of this program. When I was, uh, when I was 15, I moved out of the house. When I was 16, I had my own apartment and my own job. I, I prayed this morning that I would tell the truth, and I tell the truth to you when I say that I totally, fully supported myself from the time I was 16. I did not graduate from high school. Um, I left. I, I got out as fast as I could. I ran. I, I did well. I had good jobs. I went to culinary school. I became a chef. I, I had good jobs. I still have good jobs. And those of you who know me intimately know that I've got a really good job next weekend. But I moved from Michigan, where I was raised, to Vermont. And then I moved to Connecticut. And when I got to Connecticut, it was about 1974, 75. And um, I was a full-blown hippie and a full-blown pot smoker and a drug user. And I had the need for a gynecologist. So I went to go see this doctor in Willimantic, Connecticut, who everybody said was the greatest guy in the world. And I went to go see him, and um, and he gives me my exam, and I was smoking Marlboro at the time, and he, he was like my dad. He was fabulous. He sat next to me in the chair, and let me, let me bum a cigarette from you, and we'd smoke a cigarette together. And where else could, who else, what other doctor's office have you been in where you just get this gynecological exam, and you're smoking a cigarette with the guy talking about, you know, I mean, this guy was wonderful. I loved him. I used to go see him all the time. I'd go see him if I didn't need him. I had some uh, ovarian cysts, and I had a lot of pain around that. So he would give me these prescriptions, and he'd write them out, and he'd, he'd put his hand on my hand, and he'd say, Now listen, I'm going to give you this prescription, because if you got some pain, it'll help you. But I don't want you to get addicted. So I want you to go and fill the prescription and bring it back to me. And if you need it, you can call me and I'll give you one. So, okay, that sounds all right with me. I'm going to do anything my doctor tells me to. So I did. I'd go to the, go to the drugstore and get these prescriptions filled and come back. And, and one day when I did, I think I did this two or three times. I know it wasn't a lot. I'm trying to remember, and I hope I'm telling you the truth. But this is the truth as I see it. I think I did it like three times, and the third time I did it, the nurse that met me at the office door and took this prescription from me looked at me really weird. I said, this, she said, what are you doing with, what, what is this about? I said, well, Dr. K told me to bring this back, and, you know, and he's going to keep this for me, and, and she said, okay, okay. So a few years later, no, it wasn't a few years later, it was like a year later, I'm driving down the road and I'm listening to the radio, and, uh, 
And the uh, newscaster says that Dr. K has been arrested for writing himself Demerol prescriptions, and he's on his way to the state penitentiary in the state of Connecticut. And I'm mad. Like, this guy is fabulous. They have no right to arrest him. He didn't do that. There's no way that he did this. So, you know, whatever, let that go. I don't, I wanted to write a letter to the board. I, I, I don't think I did, but I know I wanted to write a letter to somebody protesting this move. So then we fast forward my life about 25 years, and I meet my husband, Jeff. And he's going to an IDAA meeting in New Jersey. And I house sat for him. And when he came back from his IDAA meeting, I said, what is this IDAA all about? I mean, you know, he didn't really tell me a whole lot about this meeting. We didn't know each other really well. He said, well, you might be interested in hearing some of the things that we listen to at IDAA, and he throws a tape at me. So I take it in the house, and I have a Sony Walkman, and I put it on, and I plug this tape in, and, and this voice says, Hello, my name is Tony Caminos, and I'm from Willamanta, Connecticut, or I, I, uh, I lived in Willamanta, Connecticut, and he starts telling the story, and he's the doctor that I used to bring the Demerol prescriptions to 25 years ago. <laughs> and what does that have to do with powerlessness? Not a damn thing. Which was my point this morning. You guys think I'm going to tell you about powerlessness. You have an expectation I'm going to tell you about powerlessness. You are sure about what I'm going to say and what I'm going to talk about, and I'm not. (laughs) Which is my point. That's one of the most amazing stories in my recovery, and it's such a joy to come to this meeting and know that we have that connection with each other. It's it's wonderful to be on this journey with him, and uh, it's just nice to know he's out there. And uh, and here's his wife Nancy here, and I I think I think that I gave her that prescription. I do believe that that I saw that face. <laughs> I think that's about all I have right now. I have to catch a plane at uh, 9.30. And I think we're going to break into small groups and talk about... I'd like to talk this morning about what it felt like. What did it feel like for you when you came into Al-Anon? What was that feeling? What... You know, what was your take on sitting on the curb, on the edge of the curb, spitting that booze back into the bottle? Because we all hit a bottom like that. For me, that's that's what it was. It was, I am whipped. I can't do this anymore. I need help. It was a gift of desperation. The last thing I want to say is about my mom. I uh, I have a I have a good relationship with my mom today. My mom doesn't know when I when I turn my switch off, but I do. I have to. I do my best around making sure that I take good care of my mom without being a caretaker. I'm the oldest child. I take care of everybody. I do a good job of it. And I worry about everybody, and that's okay because it helps you. If I worry about you, you're in good shape. You're in better shape than if I don't. Um, but I have been able to have a relationship with her without hating her, 
without feeling like she's the... I said yesterday, if I ever turn out like my mother, I hope somebody shoots me. And what I want to say, really, is if I ever turn out like my mother, I hope somebody helps me. That's all I have. Thank you.